Network at journalking.com. Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of March 8th, 2022, and episode number 507. And this is your host, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. And uh, yeah, flying through March. It's uh, The weather's uh, getting warmer. We've had the first back-to-back days at 70 degrees i think since october you said something like that so yeah it's still deceptive this time of the year because we already know here in northeast ohio that we're going to get at least two maybe more snowstorms before the year is out and uh even in april we've had uh, some uh heavy snowfalls over the years i remember uh i think it was 2000 Six, 2000, well, maybe it was 2008, whatever the year was, we had the uh, snow out of the uh, Cleveland Indians home opener. I was there for that game against uh, Seattle. That's uh, pretty exciting. Baseball, what's that? Who knows if they're going to be playing this year or not. That's a paranormal type story I think we're going to have to talk about pretty soon. Is baseball ever going to come back? Um, <clears throat> that's a whole different show. That uh, oh, maybe I should start a podcast on that as well. I don't know, but we got a lot of paranormal news to talk about tonight. Lots of stuff. It seems like the news, just like the weather, is starting to warm up, and that's exciting. A lot of weird stuff happening all over the world, and uh, we're gonna go back. We talked about this creature a lot lately, and it's kind of exciting. Because uh, it seems like it used to only talk about the thylacine once a year. Uh, but now this guy's in the news a lot lately. And uh, this time it's for an interesting angle of its existence. Not some uh, random uh, sighting here and there in some park or somebody's driveway. But yes, tonight's news. Encrypted news. We're going to kick it off. There, like we normally do. We're going to talk about the thylacine. And yeah, we've talked about this off and on for years. And uh, we've talked about, uh, just recently, we talked about the possibility uh, of, uh, was it the woolly mammoth being brought back to uh, existence? So we've talked about the possibility of different animals being involved. Uh, but it seems that the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger has been the center of interest when it comes to bringing back an animal from extinction. Of course, that's known as de-extinction using genetics. And every time I hear that, every time we talk about it here on the show, I always think of, uh, reminds me of Jurassic Park. Of course, Jurassic Park, they used uh, dinosaurs. um, And they used uh, frog DNA to patch Uh, Missing segments of DNA, which all that's really not possible anyway, to uh, bring them back. Of course, the theme park uh, was uh, obliterated. And these dinosaurs ran rampant and left the island, ended up in Costa Rica. Well, at least in the book anyway. But uh, gosh, now they're on their sixth movie coming out this year already of that franchise. Crazy. Um you know, we've always talked about this de-extinction stuff, and it seems like it's always so far away. It's like science fiction, just like Jurassic Park. But now scientists feel as though they're getting a lot closer to this becoming a reality. And now, in, uh, in news, a $5 million gift from the Wilson Family Trust to the University of Melbourne is being used to establish the Thylacine Integrated Genetic Restoration Research Lab. And of course, uh, if you uh, spell that out, it's T-I-G-R-R, Tiger, or I guess Tiger Lab. 
The lab will be led by Professor Andrew Pask and will focus on developing technologies that will enable the de-extinction of the thylacine and provide tools to assist threatened species conservation. Which I don't know why that should be the should be the other way around. Shouldn't we look at threatened species conservation first? And then maybe bring these uh, thylacine back? I don't know. That's just me thinking out loud. Uh, Professor Pask elaborated by saying, quote, thanks to this generous funding, we're at a turning point where we can develop the technologies to potentially bring back a species from extinction and help safeguard other marsupials on the brink of disappearing. Our research proposes nine key steps to de-extinction of the thylacine. One of our biggest breakthroughs was sequencing the thylacine genome, providing a complete blueprint on how to essentially build a thylacine. The funding will allow our lab to move forward and focus on three key areas, improving our understanding of the thylacine genome, developing techniques to use marsupial stem cells to make an embryo, and then successfully transferring the embryo into a host surrogate uterus, such as a Dunnart or Tasmanian devil, unquote. Um, bringing back animals that have once lived but have now died out is uh, its not always a good idea. And it's been argued that bringing back the woolly mammoth uh, actually could help the, the environment, uh, even though that landscape has changed a little bit, um, which is kind of an ethical issue. You know, you're tossing back an animal into an environment that has changed. Is that really the right thing to do? Because uh, they're not going to be able to adjust or change or evolve quick enough to survive. Uh, but their thought is that it could help the permafrost um, in the uh, Arctic tundra by uh, keeping the uh, permafrost frozen by their trampling and uh, exposing it and keeping it frozen. And this would keep uh, methane gases from escaping. Well, that's the thought process. Uh, this would, in turn, help fight climate change. And I'm not a big fan of using that word, but or that phrase, or or at least the Earth from warming in theory. But climate change is something you can't change. It's it's just going to happen whether we're here or not. That's just it's it's just science. Can't stop it, but. You know, for the sake of us keeping um, our beachfront condos, I guess that's what we have to do. Uh, granted, bringing dinosaurs back or some other creatures uh, could actually create a lot more issues than it does provide the thrill in bringing them back. Um, you know, like I said, if you bring back a creature and you throw them into an environment in which they used to live, but uh, the environment has changed or they don't have enough area to live well, that's not really right for that animal, and these animals are not going to flourish. And there's a lot of other ethical issues uh, from the uh, the thought that, hey, well, you know, we can bring these animals back, so what does it matter if we kill them off? Because we'll just be able to bring them back anyway. You know, it's crazy thinking about uh, all the uh, rhinos that have disappeared in the you know the last few decades and. Uh, you know, just thinking that, geez, hey, you know, we need ivory. We'll just uh, bring them back. Just keep letting people kill these creatures um, instead of preserving the the real animals. Instead of, you know, everything being genetically modified. But uh, in the case of the thylacine, uh, the habitat has remained relatively unchanged since the, uh, the thylacine was alive. Granted, it's so less than 100 years. It was uh, 1936 where the last l known living thylacine uh, died out. Granted, there's uh, a lot of sightings that have happened since then. A lot of people are uh, very adamant that this creature is still alive and well in Tasmania. And some people even think they've seen it in mainland Australia, which is not, probably not likely. Um, the uh, reintroduction could actually benefit the Australian or Tasmanian environment. Uh, PASC states, quote, at least 39 Australian mammal species have gone extinct in the past 200 years, and nine are currently listed as critically endangered and at high risk of extinction. 
the tools and methods that will be developed in the Tiger Hub will have immediately uh, immediate conservation benefits for marsupials and provide a means to protect diversity and protect against the loss of species that are threatened or endangered. Unquote. Uh, I personally, I'm all for it. Uh, I think that's exciting. I would love to be able to uh, either go to a zoo or ride a little bus and see uh, Tasmanian tigers playing, uh, you know, in reality, not just uh, like CGI or something. I, I think that would be exciting to see these creatures, even, even though in the back of my mind, uh, I would know that they're not, they're not really the same, technically. Uh, they're just genetically modified, you know, grown in a test tube kind of thing. But uh, still, I think you're going to see these creatures and that excitement um, probably, you know, overlap that thought in the back of your mind that they're uh, they're not real. Well, I guess they're real, but the real hope uh, here, especially with the thylacine, is, is that hopefully we can find that they're still out there. They're still actually alive somewhere. But conservation efforts would have to be created to keep these uh, numbers continuing uh, either way. So even if we did find the creatures, we'd have to establish conservation efforts. And if we de-extinct these creatures and we plop them out there in the Australian outback, you're still going to have to pay to conserve these creatures or make sure that they're, uh, you know, okay. or People aren't hunt hunting them and putting them in the on their, uh, their walls, because that's going to happen. Like I said, if uh, people know that they could still make them, well, why can't I have one hanging on my wall? I have one, uh, a pelt in front of my fireplace. I don't have a fireplace, but it just brings again, some ethical things here, but yeah, you're going to have to create some conservation efforts. And, uh, there's a lot more moral and ethical barriers that we have to consider, when thinking of bringing these animals back um, from the dead or, you know, even altering DNA. There's talk of this to alter DNA of existing creatures to uh, kind of speed up the, the process of them uh, getting used to the environment, which, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that either. So I mentioned the nine key steps that were mentioned uh, in the story and you might wonder what those nine steps are. Where are we in these nine steps to bringing these creatures back? Well, one, the first step was to create the genetic blueprint for the thylacine. Now, this step is complete, and the thylacine genome uh, was actually released way back in 2017, but uh, it could still be approved upon. It's not perfect. There are some... Uh, little cleanups that could happen to this to make this more effective and um, hopefully to produce a more viable living specimen. Uh, step two has also been completed, and this was to sequence the DNA for the closest relatives to the thylacine so that living cells serving as a template genome could then be edited to create the thylacine genome. Uh, third step is where this uh, newly established lab will come in. Now, this is where computers will be used that will compare marsupial genomes to identify all the differences that would potentially need to be edited to the host's genome in order to create the thylacine cell. And it's not something that we can sit and do. Uh, again, this needs to be crunched by computers, uh, very high-end computers, not sure little Hewlett-Packard at home. Uh, this is something that's going to you know, require a lot of computational energy. Uh, step four is also in development, where stem cells have been derived from their model marsupial species. Uh, the fat-tailed dunnert, from which uh, a lot of the, the uh, techniques needed for our thylacine de-extinction will be developed. Uh, steps five through seven basically are where techniques are being developed, where living stem cells are used to make an embryo and then are successfully transferred into a host species uh, through uh, three, basically three different steps. Uh, steps eight and nine 
are where the development and birth of the animal takes place. Uh, an advantage, so there is a really an advantage of the thylacine, however, and I think that's why uh, it's very smart for them to take a closer look at this this animal and utilize the uh, the thylacine uh, due to the fact that it's a marsupial. Uh, so they uh, the marsupial will actually give birth much earlier than mammals and gives birth to a very tiny young, which then complete their development while in the pouch and will continue to uh, suck milk. And this uh, this kind of stage, this step in, uh, I don't want to call it evolution, but in the uh, the birthing process, with a natural animal can help, um, you know, some certain risks in the development uh, of modified creatures or modified uh, genomes in host animals uh, because, you know, this isn't uh, something that's, again, natural. So there's uh, the potential for a lot of problems to go on, uh, birth defects or... Um, you know, problems growing or the, the uh, space needed for these little dog-like creatures uh, of the thylacine, if, if they were to be mammals, it would be a lot harder. Uh, but being able to skip a, a few months in, an in the uh, embryonic sac, uh, being in a, a pouch, being a marsupial sucking milk, uh, this could uh, that part of that process could be replaced by bottle feeding at an early stage. And the uh, development of the creature could be observed and, um, I guess, modified at will uh, a lot easier than it could if it was growing inside of an, uh, of an animal for a lot longer. So there is an advantage. But again, I, there's just some ethical things that uh, should be considered, things should, should be looked at or thought about before we get too far into this. Uh, but again... We're still far away, and despite this uh, this story uh, kind of making it sound like it's going to happen in the next uh, couple of years, it's still a decade or more away, which if you've listened to these stories or listened to me talk about this, I've been talking about it for at least a decade myself here on the show, and we always say the same thing. It's going to be a decade away. going to be a decade away, and, and so... Is it really a decade away, or is it going to be a lot longer than that? Uh, so I, I think it is going to be a lot further in the future than just 10 years. I think there's going to be some stumbles along the way. But I think there's a, there is a line in Jurassic Park that talks about uh, science, which is uh, very, very true, is that there's a lot of slow movement in scientific discoveries. And then all of a sudden, you've got a giant leap forward. And I think that's uh, scarily true uh, with a lot of aspects of science. Uh, you know, even a Jurassic Park type scenario where we go from not being able to do this stuff to uh, having uh, a T-Rex in a park. Um, maybe it's possible. So there'll probably be one day where all this just uh, all of a sudden just speeds up. And it'll probably be, um, I don't know if it'll be in, in a decade or 10 years or, or not, but all of a sudden it's just going to be, hey, everything's in place and we're already, uh, they're going to blow through some of these stages pretty fast uh, in the future. And we will have the little baby thylacines running around uh, pretty quickly after that, but they still got a lot of work to do before we get to that, but uh, it could be a big barrier falling with all of that someday. Speaking of bringing animals back from uh, the past, as well as Jurassic Park, uh, this next story does kind of the, the both of that. Yeah, you know, $5 million it doesn't go far. I was thinking about that when I was uh, writing the story out. It's uh, $5 million, yeah. If you gave me $5 million, I'd be set for life. Uh, but if I were to open up a research lab uh, dealing with DNA and uh, trying to research genomes for creatures and trying to build a creature from scratch, uh, 
I'd run out of money pretty quick. Uh, so five million, yeah, it's not going to float very long. And once they go through, once they blew through that money in a few years, that's when the science is going to slow down, and it's going to be waiting for grants, waiting for money, waiting for more donations. But uh, the good thing is, is the closer you kind of get to getting an answer, sometimes that money will flow in. And uh, especially when the story goes viral the way it has, uh, there's a good chance that you're going to get some more donors. You're going to get more people donating money. You're also going to get uh, maybe some government grants or university grants as well. But eventually you got to put up or shut up. You know, in the case of Ghostbusters, you know, if they can't uh, provide any validation or proof, they're going to get shut down. Their parapsychology labs are going to get raided and they're going to get kicked out in the street. So we'll see what happens with the thylacine. But yes, speaking of the thylacine, bringing it back, we did mention Jurassic Park. Uh, this uh, next story does both. But we're moving, instead of Australia, we're going to head to Chicago, of all places, in the Chicago Field Museum, which is also known as the Field Museum of Natural History. That's one one place that I've read about and I've always wanted to go there. But now I might go there because of this. Uh, they're going to be hosting an exhibit that's uh, called Jurassic Oceans, Monsters of the Deep. Uh, the exhibit will focus on the ocean life between 145 and 200 million years ago. And, of course, uh, one of our favorite creatures to talk about here on the show. You love him. Or I guess her. Yes, the Loch Ness Monster, the uh, plesiosaur, which is the uh, probably the most popular hypothesis uh, of this creature, although it's more than likely not true. Uh, pretty much the poster child for the Loch Ness Monster. Plesiosaur will be featured along with uh, many other animals from apex predators down to uh, a lot of smaller water-based creatures. And it's sad because... Uh, I've always thought that the the uh, ancient oceans were very interesting, and I always found it uh, enthralling. But as a kid, it was always hard to get books that had the the ocean monsters because you know the land based dinosaurs always got all the attention, but the uh, the ocean creatures uh, just kind of got shunned for the most part. Uh, fossils from the Natural History Museum in London will be featured. Uh, some of which can actually be touched, which is pretty cool. Uh, there's some CGI animations and other displays that will showcase uh, many animals of the Jurassic period. There's also some that are uh, much, much more recent, uh, such as the Megalodon and other ancient sharks. Now, the Megalodon is pretty recent, I guess, in historical aspects. When you're looking at uh, ancient sea creatures, like three and a half million years ago is when that guy died out. Pretty big. Wouldn't want to see that thing in the water or probably even in the zoo for that matter. Uh, big sharks are scary enough. Uh, it's also going to sh uh, show the uh, ichthyosaurs. The ichthyosaurs are, uh, they have the shape of a dolphin. They look like dolphins, but they're not related at all. They just... Uh, you know, the dolphin kind of stole that because it's good shape to uh, swim through the water, be pretty agile. Uh, so this is going to be a, a really interesting uh, exhibit. So anybody who might be excited for this, uh, gosh, seems like this is sponsored by Jurassic World Domination or Dom Domination Dominion, uh, but it's not. But uh, anybody who's excited for the new Jurassic World Dominion movie later this year uh, as well as anybody who loves ancient animals will absolutely love this I know when I read about this um, I'm trying to figure out when I can sneak out there just flying to Chicago go see the exhibit and then fly home if I have to that's uh, how excited I am about this I think it's pretty cool and the reason why I've always wanted to go to the field museum in, in Chicago is because it's actually one of the largest museums of natural history in the world and the exhibit 
Monsters, uh, Jurassic, was it Jurassic Oceans? Monsters of the Deep. It's going to run through September 5th at the Field Museum in Chicago. So check that out. If you get the time, I know a, a lot of flights uh, fly through Chicago. So if you can get time between flights, uh, I don't know how far away from O'Hare or I forget the other airport there, but uh, how far away it is from the airports can't be too far. I know it's uh, it's kind of, it's yeah, it's right downtown there. So gosh, you got to go check it out. Go check it out. Uh, now to a story that uh, is going to make a few of you probably squirm a little bit in your seats. Uh, you might be looking at your feet. Uh, you might be wondering what that feeling is on the back of your neck. But a giant palm-sized venomous spider native to Asia has not only invaded the United States, but is now spreading in all directions. So check out your garden. Uh, look in the corner of your bedroom. Look under your bed because it's coming for you. Uh, the headlines are everywhere. This is a pretty popular story, even in, in the mainstream news, but I think it's pretty important because uh, this is a, a, a creature that shouldn't exist here in the United States, but it's here. And it's coming to your garden very soon. Well, at least that's what science is telling you, and that's what these headlines are saying, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. It's not a major problem. Uh, it's it's taken a long time for this creature to go from one small area to uh, others. And as far as animals spreading, it, it takes a long time. And, you know, this is an invasive species, technically. Um, so, yeah, is it worth freaking out over? No, not really. Uh, so, yeah, being this invasive species, a lot of those invasive species, uh, they cause a lot of damage. Um, if you've ever been down to, let's see, uh, um, Louisiana, Alabama, uh, I think even parts of Texas, they got problems with the nutria, these giant creatures that dig up everything and cause all sorts of problems. Those are some really bad invasive species. Of course, Florida is, uh, Florida is the poster state for invasive species that are causing damage. Uh, but... Yeah, you know, like I said, these uh, these new spiders are uh, actually not damaging, and scientists are actually saying that these these uh, spiders might actually be a good thing. Well, of course, that's until you see one in person. I'm sure. I've seen some big spiders. I saw uh, down in Jamaica. Saw a banana spider, pretty big boy, pretty big spider. Uh, kind of scary. Um, not a fan of those things. It's weird. They got too many legs. Just like a snake. Not enough legs. Makes me nervous. Get away from me. Uh, the Joro spider, which is what this guy's called, it's got uh, eight black and yellow striped legs. And it was discovered in Georgia here in the United States back in 2013. Uh, it took them a couple years to exactly identify what this thing was. Uh, the spider has since then been tracked it has now moved to 25 counties in Georgia. It has moved into South Carolina as well. Uh, the reason for the spider to gain some popularity is the uh, recently published paper in the journal Physiological Entomology that say these spiders are able to survive a brief freeze more than other closely related spe uh, species of the same genus. And this suggests that the spider... We'll be able to live in colder climate regions than where they currently are in southeastern United States. Uh, Joro spiders can be, uh, they're about three inches long. They've got uh, a large bulbous body with bright yellow stripes. And, um, you know, if you're skittish about spiders and you're in the chat room, uh, you might want to cover your eyes because I'm going to throw some pictures of these guys in the chat room to kind of get a, an idea of what these things look like and how big they are. So the first one I'll throw in there is uh, kind of the underside of this spider. So you're looking at uh, the giant web and what the spider, the, the coloration of the legs look like. So if maybe you've seen one. 
I don't know. Maybe you got one in your backyard already. I don't know. And we'll show another one where a, I think it's a biologist has this on her hand. So you can see the relative size to a, a hand, what they look like. Now, that looks scary. I don't think I'd want one uh, on my hand. But uh, the spider gets its name from Jorogumo, which in uh, Japanese folklore uh, could turn itself into a beautiful woman to prey on unsuspecting men, which is weird. It's a story that sounds very familiar. Uh, if you're into cryptozoology, you might have heard of the siren or the mermaid. Well, that's a, a very similar story. And despite the name, spiders don't seem to be a threat to humans or uh, so far have not been observed changing into female figures that I know of. Uh, well, they do subdue their prey with venom and their fangs. Uh, their fangs are generally too short to break human skin. So um, they're not really a danger, but we'll see. You know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll learn to hate us like the uh, copies of Jurassic Park. We turn on them, they turn on us. I don't know. We'll see. Can't be any worse than those uh, those uh, killer the killer bees and the uh, the giant hornets, <clears throat> the bald eagle hornet, whatever whatever that thing was last year. Everyone was afraid it was going to kill us a couple years ago. Uh, West, the uh, spiders seem to be spreading quickly, and the reason for this. Uh, there's a couple of reasons, actually, that they're thinking that these things have spread so quickly. Um, the hatchlings use silk webs to carry themselves on the wind to new areas, a process called ballooning. And they're also good at traveling. Uh, there's even a recent report from a grad student who accidentally transported one of these spiders to Oklahoma. Whoops. Uh, it's thought these spiders made it to the area through shipping containers and somehow made it to this uh, portion of Georgia. Yeah, but uh, they're pretty cool. And again, they're not thought to be a, a danger to uh, the environment. They're actually uh, thought to be uh, possibly a, a good help to the environment because uh, – either a food source for uh, for birds and it doesn't you know if they go extinct no big deal uh, they're also with their giant webs that they create okay actually help eliminate garden pests more naturally but we'll see you know the jury's out on whether or not these are going to have any effect on agriculture which that'll be the big panic if uh, they actually do uh, create harm on our agricultural process. We'll see if there's no peaches next year. Then we'll know for sure. Well, kidding. We'll, we'll see. We'll keep an eye out on these giant spiders. So if you see some balloons with little spiders hanging down, uh, fear not. They're not coming for you yet. And the next story here, also in cryptozoology, one of the biggest stories we've had in years past was the uh, 2011's Aflacalypse. You might remember that story. Uh, this is where mass die-offs of many animals were recorded throughout the year. And uh, despite being a pretty much normal occurrence in the animal kingdom, a lot of people were thinking it was the end of the world. And it was uh, probably one of the most covered stories, not just in the paranormal, but also in mainstream media. There was uh, maps created on Google Maps where these things were happening along with stories. And, of course, it kicked off in BB, Arkansas on New Year's Day. What a great time to have uh, you know, a paranormal story happen, kicking off the new year with uh, what went on to become the biggest story of the year that year, for at least for me, on the Paranormal News Insider. Uh, so in BB, Arkansas, an estimated 5,000 blackbirds were found dead scattered on rooftops and streets. And now, this year, uh, a video that was taken back on February 7th has been circulating on the news feeds that uh, took place in Mexico, where blackbirds are seen plunging to their deaths 
on the pavement below. So obviously the big thing with the story is there's video proof of this happening. It's not just uh, photos of the aftermath, which is what we had in BB, Arkansas. Now we have uh, actual an actual film of this, and it's kind of crazy. The first time I saw this, there was a uh, you know a thing on there that uh, sensitive viewers and another one said it was uh, you know depicting animal death and it was gory and gruesome and all these things. I was like, wow, yeah, this is uh, it's got to be a scary story. And then you watch it and it's it's not too bad. It's not too bad, but it is kind of sad to see. But it's nature, and nature is not always cute little butterflies and uh, pretty birds and things. You know, things things happen. Uh, the incident took place in the northern Mexican state of Chihuahua. That's where they had the dogs, uh, the uh, little puppies, little dogs, little things. Uh, security footage captured a cloud of yellow-headed blackbirds. Um, so you see a, like a yellow house. There's like a cityscape and a street. And then all of a sudden you see this cloud. This black cloud fall from the sky. And uh, fly right down toward the ground. So uh, I do have a screen capture of that video. So if you're a sensitive viewer, uh, you might want to turn away. But it's just uh, a black cloud coming down toward the street. So if you're not seeing this video, it's it's pretty scary. It looks like a tree, but should probably should have done it before and after. But uh, you see this yellow house and the streets, and this this cloud just comes down toward the ground. Though, what happened next is uh, the cloud kind of disperses. You'll see a lot of uh, birds fly away, but on the street, uh, there's a handful of birds that is laying there. Now, if you've ever had, uh, if you've got a patio or you you work at a place with big, large windows. Sometimes birds will fly into windows. It just, unfortunately, it happens. And uh, the birds will hit the window. Sometimes, if you're lucky, they uh, they kind of get stunned and they'll just lay there. And they sometimes will lay there long enough that they look dead. Uh, but they'll eventually shake out of it and fly away. And in the video, you kind of see some of that. Although the video doesn't last too long after the, um, you know, the initial uh, collapse of the cloud on the street, uh, but you do see a handful of birds kind of shake it off and fly away. Some you can kind of see kind of moving around a little bit, uh, but I'm sure there's a few that are not going to make it. Uh, but I don't think there was as many dead as what they were trying to show. Uh, but it was pretty scary to see that. You know, I've never seen uh, a flock of birds like that fly into the ground or into objects. And I'm sure, you know, luckily there was nobody there seeing that or right in front of it. But uh, just a crazy event. And of course, when anything weird like that happens, uh, there's all sorts of speculation about what could have caused this. What the... Uh, the uh, possibility of what created the the birds to do what they did. Of course, there's not a whole lot you can see in the video. Again, you can just see this large black cloud uh, plummet toward the earth, plummet into the house, plummet onto the ground and the sidewalk and the street. So, of course, everybody stepped forward with their, you know, their own thoughts. Everybody has an opinion or five. And a lot of these uh, kind of agreed with each other. So, of course, some of these these uh, ideas or thoughts kind of um, propelled themselves. So a, a lot of people thought for some strange reason it had to do with pollution, possibly due to the use of wood-burning heaters in the region. I don't know. It looks pretty clear to me. So you see blue sky. Uh, agricultural chemicals was one that was brought up. And, of course, uh, they've, they've experienced some cold weather in the region. Uh, the yellow-headed... Uh, blackbirds uh, do uh, do migrate to northern Mexico from the United States. Um, so they do try to avoid the cold weather, but they're not going to just die because it's cold out. These are birds here. 
you know, it always makes me laugh when I hear people, um, <clears throat> they go into a retail store to, to buy bird seed. And if the bird seed's out, uh, I've literally heard people freak out and say that uh, their birds are going to die now because they can't buy the bird seed that they normally buy. Well, these birds are living in nature. They, they can take care of themselves. They don't need us to feed them. And actually, us feeding birds uh, doesn't really help them out very much, believe it or not. just makes it nice for us to watch them. Anyway, um, some people thought, of course, the uh, social media experts stepped up and uh, you know gave their scientific two cents. And some of those uh, social media experts proclaimed that they were electrocuted by power lines. Which, uh, eh, no, not going to happen. Or uh, 5G technology. Now, this is the big one that's been circulating on a lot of uh, YouTube experts, um, paranormal uh, shows that, uh, you know, they know everything. Uh, 5G technology. No, it wasn't 5G technology. Uh, Dr. Richard Broughton an ecologist with the UK Center for Ecology and Hydrology states he feels that a raptor is probably to blame. Um, so, yes, a bird of prey. So he says, quote, this looks like a raptor, like a peregrine or a hawk has been chasing a flock like they do with murmurating starlings. And they have crashed as the flock was forced low. You can see they act like a wave at the beginning, as if they were being flushed from above, unquote. Uh, Dr. Alexander Lees, a senior lecturer in conservation biology at Manchester Metropolitan University, also agrees. Uh, he said, quote, for my part and from one video and no toxicology, I'd say the most probable cause is the flock murmurating to avoid a predatory raptor and hitting the ground. There always seems to be a knee-jerk response to blame environmental pollutants, but collisions with infrastructure are very common. In a tightly packed flock, the birds are following the movements of the bird in front rather than actually interpreting their wider surroundings. So it isn't unexpected for such events to happen occasionally. Unquote. Uh, so, yes, when you see birds moving in unison in the sky, it's called murmurating. Using, you know, the word murmur. Uh, so you can't say that you don't learn anything from the show. At least I hope you don't say that. I hope I teach and teach and share some knowledge and information. Um, so, yes, this is uh, unfortunately a natural thing. And if uh, a bird of prey were to be above swooping down. And the the entire flock murmurates and moves in a different direction. Unfortunately, you know, not every bird is going to be able to react accordingly. And again, I, I don't know. They don't really say how many birds actually died. Uh, it's just a shocking video that they show. And birds that are, are shocked that hit objects, hit windows and things. I've seen... Personally, I've seen birds that have laid there for upwards of three to five minutes that actually have just gotten up and flown away. So uh, you don't know. You know, I guess they're concussed. I don't know. But uh, it's possible that these birds, most of them made it out. And uh, only, uh, you know, only a, a handful possibly uh, perished in this. So that being said, we're going to wrap up. The cryptid part of the news tonight. We're going to head into UFO news. And as I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, I took last year off from talking about the MUFON sighting statistics as the organization uh, going through some changes and uh, moving from out west to the Cincinnati, Ohio area back again, back home where they came from. Um, they were pretty sporadic about releasing the data to the public, at least the non-paying public like myself. Uh, well, they've been pretty consistent the last few months with the releasing of data. Uh, so last month, I, I went ahead and talked about the, um, the January 
exciting statistics just to kind of kick the the year off uh, last year early 2021 i think it was like uh, four or five months they didn't have any data and it was one month uh, in the summer i believe they missed as well but uh, they've kicked it off the last five or six months well four or five months have been pretty consistent so i uh, thought i would kick the year off and talk about it uh, you know if we linger off of it we linger off of it if i've got time to talk about it we'll talk about it but uh not really impressive numbers that uh, i've seen from mufon in the last few months keeping an eye on it. it's kind of why i kind of ignored it didn't really care too much about it but it's it's kind of worth noting i suppose with all the uh, attention on uaps and, and ufos uh, so the, for the month of january um, mufon recorded a total of 559 sightings around the world and this was down from 593 from the previous month of December of 2021. The major uh, number of sightings occurred in the United States, of course, because this is a U.S.-based organization with uh, more investigators here in the United States and, of course, a website based in the United States. Uh, 426 sightings as compared to December's 497 U.S. sightings. So what about February? And uh, as I always say, uh, it's a short month. So not a whole lot of time to uh, put cases in, which, you know, it's only a couple of days shorter than uh, your average month anyway. But uh, we do expect to see a slight dip in numbers. But February, wow, what a huge slump. Only a total the entire total, 399 sightings reported to MUFON. Uh, this is the lowest total I've been able to find uh, since I've been tracking these numbers all the way back to 2015. Uh, September 2020 kind of came close. Uh, there was 404 total reports. And while numbers last year were missing, again, due to uh, a few months the months that I did have statistics for, the totals were, were all above 400, well above 400. Uh, what does that mean? Is this, uh, you know, not a good sign for the organization? I don't know. It's not a, not a good sign. Um, and you would think with, with all the talk, granted, it's kind of lingered in a different direction since June of last year, the big announcement of the UAP findings. It's kind of gotten a little quiet. But, um, yikes, 399. And uh, of these 399 sightings, the United States led the way with uh, 330 sightings. And looking at the numbers, it's actually not the lowest U.S. total that I've documented. Uh, the September numbers had uh, 404 for the global total and uh, 313 for the United States that month. So uh, that was a, a much lower overall. So that's telling you that other countries just aren't contributing anymore. Or I can say as much. And that's kind of a concern as well because of, uh, you know, granted, maybe they should just concentrate here in the United States, but... Uh, being a global organization, I think it's worthwhile to look at what what else is happening out there. Granted, you know, every culture is different, but um, with how they interpret UFOs. But I think that helps kind of, I wouldn't say validate, but kind of keep track of maybe what's really happening throughout the world versus just looking at uh, the United States was what we see or what we interpret or what we report. Uh, but it's kind of a concern when you see that major of a dip. And of course, it seems to be that, um, you know, other countries just aren't reporting as much. The United Kingdom was second last month with uh, just 19 reports. Uh, Canada had 14. Thanks, Canada, for your contribution. Uh, France had nine. Australia had four, Mexico and India had five, and 17 other countries or territories had one sighting each. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what could have 
a cause that, you know, maybe a, especially European countries, maybe a little more concerned with what's happening in the Ukraine, possibly. Uh, so they're not really worried about what's happening in uh, the uh, in the skies. I, I don't know. But uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that to see if that changes in uh, the next next few months or so. We'll see. But uh, it's, I think it's a big concern to see such a dip in sighting numbers. Uh, the U.S. state with the most sightings was California with 31. Of course, California generally always has the highest because, again, they have the highest population. So you would expect that to be... Uh, in line with the number of reports as well. Florida was next with 32. Texas had 30. Dips all the way down to Arizona with 17. Colorado had 14. Oregon, 13. Ohio, 12. Tennessee had 11. Missouri had 8. New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Illinois, and Massachusetts had 7 each. Michigan, Washington, Maine, Nevada, and Pennsylvania had six reports each, and Minnesota, Connecticut, Kentucky, Georgia, and Maryland had five each. Uh, so again, big dip in numbers, and we'll see. Are they going to re- recover? You know, it's it's a beginning of the year is always tough. Again, it's a short month, and it's a uh, if the weather's bad throughout most of the United States, which you know we've had a little bit of weather. Uh, you'll always see a dip in reports. And the reports aren't necessarily reflective of what is occurring in the skies during that month. So uh, anything that's reported in the month of February is added to their sighting statistics. So if something happened in 1976 and somebody finally decided to talk about it and they uh, uploaded that report on February 17th of 2022, well, that report counts for February of 2022, not for 1970-whatever, 76 or whatever I said. Uh, So that's kind of important to note. And of course, if something happened in January but wasn't reported until February, it's going to, you know, occur with the statistics in February, not January, which I'm not sure how much I agree with. And, you know, of course, they've talked about changing or altering or fixing their um, uh, their client uh, database, but really have not seen much in the way of changes over the years. It's a little bit better. It used to be really, really horrible. Uh, but it, I don't know. I think there should be a number for the number of reports and actual February sightings separated somehow. But, you know, that could increase as the years go by, as the months go by. Those February numbers could increase, you know, especially if somebody saw something on February 28th and didn't report it till the next day or two days later, of course. And on a historical note, this Sunday, March 13th, it's a pretty historical day. It's going to be the 25th anniversary of the original Phoenix Lights incident. Uh, The event was written off by the government as being flares that were dropped by uh, A-10 warthogs. Uh, during training exercises at the Barry Goldwater Range. Uh, however, witnesses not only reported these stationary lights over Phoenix, but also a large triangular object that covered the stars and was seen from one corner to the another corner of the state over the course of a few hours. Uh, so it was really two separate events that were thrown under one umbrella, but it all explained away. And... Uh, caused a big stir. It was front-page news uh, for days, but it essentially ignored and ultimately explained a separate aircraft that uh, appeared from one giant craft. So uh, I've read that it was uh, five planes that were flying in unison that people thought were one giant craft, but it was really separate airplanes. Uh, Arizona Governor Fife Simington III mocked the sighting by stating during a press conference that he had found who was responsible and then showed a person wearing an alien costume while in handcuffs. The event gave uh, gave him a lot of negative press. 
but later on, he said uh, he was trying to lighten up the situation that had become a large concern for many residents in the state and beyond. It was uh, pretty scary news at the time. A lot of concern about what happened in the skies, even though it was explained pretty easily. And a lot of people could say, you know, it was a cover up. Uh, but I do think that the uh, lights that were observed hanging in the sky in over Phoenix uh, were easily explainable. And I, I do agree with that. Uh, but it does not explain the large craft that was seen uh, by a lot of people that were uh, calling in to 911 throughout the night. And to, to me, the cover-up would be dropping those flares in an attempt to explain away what uh, the other sighting was in the skies. Uh, but that's just my viewpoint of uh, covering what happened at the time and uh, remembering that sighting. Gosh, 25 years ago. thats makes me feel a lot older than how I already feel. Uh, in 2007, Symington admitted that he had also seen the lights that formed the large triangle shape and said it was definitely not in the aircraft that he had ever seen. Uh, but by then, it's too late. Uh, you know, 10 years later, uh, it's too late. It's too late. Uh, the Phoenix lights also returned in 2007, but were explained as military flares dropped by aircraft, this time out of Luke Air Force Base. And the following year, 2008, the lights were seen once again. Uh, this time, the lights were explained as flares attached to helium balloons released by a civilian who uh, wanted to dupe the public, and he did so pretty easily. Uh, one last note here. Uh, earlier in the show, I mentioned traveling to Chicago to see the new Jurassic Oceans Monsters of the Deep exhibit at the Chicago Field Museum. Uh, but if warmer weather and UFOs is uh, more your style or space in general is your style, there's a, a very special grand reopening happening this week. And that's this Thursday, March 10th. The Angel Ramos Foundation Science and Visitor Center will officially reopen at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. It's great to hear some positive news out of that area after uh, the collapse of the uh, Arecibo Radio Observatory. Uh, tickets are just $15. The Science and Visitor Center educate over 100,000 visitors each year, granted most of which are uh, high school students. Uh, they focus heavily on uh, STEM and uh, educating our high school kids and uh, younger, and most of which are from Puerto Rico and the United States, but there are visitors from all over the world. Uh, so if you're planning on going through Puerto Rico, or uh, it's not that too far, uh, not too far. We flew out there uh, about three years ago, three, four years ago, I think. Went on a cruise out of Puerto Rico. It's a pretty easy flight, and uh, it's you know, pretty interesting area. Um, but it never made it out to Hercebo. It would have loved to have seen it before uh, collapsed. But um, even though the big radio observatory is gone, uh, there's still talk of uh, they're trying to get the next generation one put into place. Uh, there's still plenty of work going on at the observatory and a lot of information still to be uncovered from the data collected. And there's a lot to learn down there at the observatory. They're doing online classes all the time uh, for uh, various ages and, and uh, people of different backgrounds. But uh, lots to see down there. And uh, tell them I sent you. Granted, they'll have no idea who I am, but uh, at least you'll told them that I sent you. Anyway, that's all I got for you tonight. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you're listening live or you're in the chat room, uh, don't forget to come back tonight for Enter the Dark at 10 p.m. Eastern right here at the Paranormal King Radio Network at ParanormalKing.com. And I'll see you next week. But for now, keep your eyes in the skies, your ears in the woods, the hair standing on the back of your neck, and always keep your mind slightly ajar. And above all else, don't stop believing. For the Paranormal News Insider, 
This is Dr. Brian D. Parsons reporting.